0: Uh, it's good to see everybody here today, and I'm uh, just so thankful for uh, you taking some time out of your week to come and hang out with us on this rainy morning. Thankful for the rain. Uh, grateful that uh, we get to enjoy some of that. Hopefully it's filling up the lakes, right, uh, so that we can uh, get, get Lake Travis and some of these other lakes filled back up so these cities have water. Um, but just grateful for that. And uh, this morning as I was just looking out my back porch, watching it rain and fill up the lake behind my house, uh, was just reminded that every good and perfect gift comes from God, uh, that He is a good God. And, um, and if you believe in God or not, this morning, um, as a Christian, I, I believe that's true, that it's a gift from God, that we've got this rain uh, that we get to, to enjoy and just watch it soak into the land. So anyway, um, if you have not been with us the last five or so weeks now, uh, we have been working our way through some some difficult questions in this series called Explore God. and And so these questions are not lightweight, and there's parts of these talks each week that are very heady, uh, very intellectual in nature, and if you're, um, if you're kind of following along with this, some of it you might feel like you're sitting in, a, in some sort of lecture classroom, uh, but these questions are very important questions, and they're questions that we need to wrestle with, and whether you've been in church a long time, or whether uh, you've been in church just for a small amount of time, or maybe you're just getting back into church, wherever you find yourself in that spectrum, the truth is that we've got to know what we believe. Um, and, and it's my job, one of the, the privileges that I have as a pastor is to get to help people understand why we can be confident in what we say we believe as Christ followers, okay? And so today, we're going to tackle this very difficult issue um, about the reliability of the Scripture. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, I mean, it's a popular book. Uh, there's, there's no other book on the planet that's had the impact that the Bible has, Uh, There's nowhere you can go and find hard data on all of the impact that it's had, because a lot of it's anecdotal, and I'll talk more about that later, and when I I say anecdotal, I mean you can hear stories of people's lives have been impacted by it, but let's just look at the fact that that there's more copies of the Bible than any other book on the planet, that it's been sold more than any other book on the planet, so a lot of people are interested in the Bible. A lot of people are interested in what it says, and so this morning... Um, we can't truly address all of the questions that you may have about what's actually in the Bible. And in fact, let me just go ahead and tell you that um, in two weeks, we're going to start a series uh, that's going to be called The Big Picture. And and we're going to spend about 10, 11 weeks walking through a high-level flyover of what is actually in the Bible, okay? Because here's the thing, I mean, if we if we really we really want to know what we believe, then we need to look at the book that, that helps us understand that. But I talk to people all the time, and they say things like, um, I don't believe the Bible, or I really like the Bible, it's a good book. But when I ask the question, well, do you know what the Bible's all about? Uh, I tend to get the answer of either a blank stare, or, well, uh, I know some stories. I, I know about this, this uh, little shepherd boy that, that slew this giant, or I know about this this man named Moses or something, and he like, uh, you know, he parts the Red Sea, or, or maybe they've heard these stories through their life, but they can't really tell you, well, what's the point of those stories? Where, where are those stories headed? Where are, they, where are they going? And so, I'm excited to just tell you that in, in two weeks, we're going to start this big picture series, and we're going to walk through what's in the Bible. But today, I want to tackle, like I said already, the question of, can we trust what it says? Is it true? And if, if, if it is true, obviously that changes everything because then I need to look at it and I need to evaluate my life through that lens rather than uh, just assuming it's just some some cute little sayings about what I could possibly do with my life. Some little helpful tidbits of information to some tips and tricks on how to have a better life, okay? And it's much, much more than that. Um, Let me me start by just giving you a few facts of the Bible. Now, this may be uh, common knowledge for you. I I don't know, but if you're new to the Bible, maybe you don't know just some of the high-level information about what what, it, what comprises the Bible. First, let me tell you, it's, it's 66 books, okay? So it's not just one book, it's actually 66 different books written by 40 authors um, over a period of time of about 1,600 years in three different languages, okay? And so that gives you a quick snapshot that this book is pretty miraculous and that it comprised, it's comprised of 66 different books from 40 authors in three languages over 1,600 years of time that it was written, very unique in that. I mean, tell me of another book that you know of that, that, is, that is created in this way or that's fashioned in this way. You won't find it. It's a very unique book in the way that it's laid out. But the, the bigger question today is how can we actually have confidence in the message that it, that it declares? How can we actually know that it's true? I'm going to give you four reasons why I think that we can have confidence in the message of the Bible. And the first one is the one we're going to probably spend the most time on because there's a little bit of, uh, of just academic work that we need to do. Because as I've said in previous messages throughout this series, whether you are an intellectual or whether you're just a person floating through life, um, wherever you find yourself and you're like, you, leave up, you leave the hard thinking up to other people who, who make more money than you, or maybe in the academic world they say we don't make that much money, but, uh, but wherever you find yourself... Let me just give you some, some reasons why you can have confidence in the text today, okay? So, um, in 1947, there were the two little shepherd boys, and they were near Qumran, which is near the Dead, Dead Sea, and as they were out there chasing their sheep, uh, one of their sheep got loose and, uh, and headed up this mountain and went into a cave. Now, these two little boys, knowing uh, what they had been taught from the time they were little, they're pretty superstitious Uh, They did not want to go into this cave, and probably just because little boys thinking about going into a cave um, that's dark and and, and who knows what's going on in there, uh, they were a little scared, and so they kind of waited, but they knew that their sheep was in there, so what they decided to do was throw some rocks in this cave and hopefully scare the sheep out so they didn't have to go in and get the sheep, okay? So they started throwing rocks in, and they throw a rock in, and they hear something break that sounds like pottery, sounds like something that's not just hitting against another rock, and when they walk into the cave, what do they find? they find these clay pots, and inside these pots, they find these scrolls that had been hidden in this cave to protect it while the people were under, were under siege in that particular area. And so they wanted to, to, to find a safe place for, these, for keeping. And these guys find these clay pots, and they're full of these scrolls, well, which we could either call the Qumran scrolls, or what's probably more popular known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you're saying, well, Nick, why is this so important? Well, up until this point... Um, The one thing that people could say about our text, the Bible, is that the earliest we could go back, or should I say the the farthest we could go back, to find text that we would translate into the Bible that we use today was roughly 900 A.D., okay? Well, Jesus walked the face of the planet when? Around 0 to 33 A.D., right? And so he's there back back in that that time, and, and we've got 900 years that passes, and we've got these copies of copies of copies of copies, and... It's 900 years A.D. when we've got this copy. We say, yeah, this is dated to about that. Well, these scrolls, when the, the, critical, uh, uh, the critical scholars begin to analyze, and you can imagine what they found when, in these scrolls was the, primarily the book of Isaiah. Okay? So the book of Isaiah is in these scrolls. And when they find it, they date these to 100 B.C. Now, hold on that to, to that in your mind, because we're going to come back to that in just a second. But 100 B.C., or when they, they dated these. So that's a 1,000 years difference. We've now got a 1,000 years closer to when these were originally written, okay? Now, I'm telling you that because that's important to understand that the text that you and I study and use and hold authoritatively as Christians today goes all the way back to a text that, that we could translate from from 100 B.C. Now, some of you might be saying, "Well, well, how does the text from 100 B.C. compared to what we had before we had those scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Well, let me, let me just, I'm excited. I'm almost giddy to talk about it, okay? Let me explain to you what was going on. When they pulled out the book of Isaiah, they began to compare it, and you obviously had secular scholars, and you had Christian scholars. Christian scholars were super excited because they wanted to look at this text, and they wanted to really discover um, How is this text, the nuances of the text, uh, what what was going on in the language? How does it look in in terms of how can we confirm what's already there? But the secular scholars were thinking, here's our chance to disprove the Christians and basically undermine their authority, the Bible. (laughs) Well, the problem was is when they critically analyzed this text, what they found was that within um, the text, there were very few variances at all from this thousand years that had transpired. There were very few variances. In fact, this morning, if you look at even the the chapter 53 from Isaiah, we're not going to go there yet, but we're going to come back to it in a minute. Isaiah 53, um, which is one of the most famous passages out of Isaiah where it speaks the person of Jesus. Okay, And in that particular passage, in Isaiah 53, there's 166 Hebrew words. Okay, So hang with me. 166 Hebrew words. And in those 166 Hebrew words from the thousand years to the nine hundreds roughly, when we had the, the, the text that we were using for our current Bible, there were 17 letters that were off, 17 letters. Of those 17 letters, 10 of those were simply spelling diff, uh, variations. So if you know anything about the English language, which is one of the most difficult languages in the world, we have variances in which we can spell words different ways, this isn't, um, obviously not written in English, but we understand how this works, that if you say the word honor and you spell the word honor in America, you would spell it H-O-N-O-R, okay? We honor our country, that's how we would spell it. But if you know anything about the Brits, or the English, when you spell it in formal English, you'd use H-O, or Harley back there in Australian, uh, it's H-O-N-O-U-R, right? So similar to that, there were, there were 10 of those 17 variances were connected to this idea that you spelled it slightly different. Out of that, four were stylistic changes that were based on some prepositions that were used, and they were not words that changed the meaning of the the sentence or the phrasing or the the intent at all. Didn't change it at all. They were just simply prepositions that were used uh, that had changed. There were four of those, and then finally there was the word "light" that was used in verse eleven, and that word there only uh, was included, but it, it was it was speaking to what was already implied in the original text. So. Uh, no variance really, just, just they went ahead and put the word in there. Are you with me? Here, here's the point I'm making. A thousand years of time passes and basically no change between the text that they found in that little cave, those two little boys found in these clay pots, and what we were using prior to that. This is in 1947. So you can imagine in the Christian world, this is a huge discovery, huge find, because it gives um, the, the human race some, some sense of we've got this... Uh, textual criticism and way of evaluating whether this text is trustworthy and the text holds up. Now, what, what's even cooler, um, or even just another piece of information there, I don't want to get ahead of myself, is that that's the Old Testament that we looked at, but what about the New Testament? What about the, the 27 books in the New Testament that we hold to? Um, that's, it's the second half of our Bible, but really only a third in terms of when you hold up your Bible and you try to see how much is there. It's about a third. Um, half of that written by the Apostle Paul, okay? And when we look at that, wh- well, where can we get confidence that it was and it is authoritative? Well, in 1934, a man named Holland Roberts, uh, he was in Manchester. He had just become a doctor, and he was rummaging around in the basement of that, this big library at the university there in Manchester. And as he's there, he's digging through these old papyrus documents. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been in uh, the, the basement of a library um, but I know we've got a, a guy, who's, he's not here today, but Aaron Negron who works in the library, and I'm sure he would find this very fascinating, but there was this doctor, and he's down there in the bottom of his library, and he, um, he's rummaging around. He finds these, these documents, these papyrus documents, and he's flipping through them, and he comes to what's known as P52. Again, hang with me. He gets to P52, and on the front, he sees this this language that's there, and he, he begins to translate that out, and it's John chapter 18, uh, verse 31 through 33, and he flips it over, and on the back of it is John 18, uh, verse 37 and 38. Now, let me read this to you and just get a sense of what this verse says. But this is, this is in, um, the, in, in 1930, uh, 1934 that he finds this, okay? And here's what, here's what the, the passage in, in verse 37, or, uh, verse 31 of chapter 18 of John says. So Pilate told them, take him yourselves and judge him, According to your law, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now on the back side of this piece of papyrus, P52, this is what it said uh, in verse 37. You are the king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am the king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? said Pilate. So, if you've been around church, you've probably heard these verses before. Now, here's what's interesting this piece of papyrus was dated back to AD 125, roughly. AD 125. Now this is less than 50 years from the time when the, the New Testament writers had finished writing all of their accounts about Jesus and the Gospels and all that had been written. So listen, thinking about that, um, there were many people who were still alive who had walked the earth while Jesus was here that, that could have easily testified against what was written in these early documents, right? And we've already got a, a copy that goes back to AD 125, and here's what's cool. It was found in Egypt. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal? Egypt is 500 miles away from where this was written, uh, directly across the Mediterranean Sea. Which means that within 50 years, the book of John, as we know it, was circulating amongst the Christians of the church of that time and being used authoritatively to teach from. Now think about that. 50 years, and the early church was taking this information and they were dispersing it and they were teaching it. And it's what we hold to today. Now, some of you might be might be going, okay, this is not all that cool. Um, I get this is very intellectual um, in nature, or this is just some facts you're just giving me. And I encourage you to go and search this out on your own to look at the research that's there because I hear a lot of people say things like you can't trust the Bible, but when I ask them where, what their source is, they generally say, well, I heard somebody say this, or I watched a documentary on TV, or, or something that uh, maybe I read Dan Brown's book. Okay, what, whatever it is, but you, you aren't going and looking at some credible sources to, to find information about the Bible. I think when you start to look there, you're going to be amazed at what you find concerning the reliability of the Scripture. But before we leave this point that textual criticism and textual evaluation is a big deal, I want you to compare this to some other historical works. Now, how many of you guys ever read any of Homer when you were, when you were growing up in school? Ever read any of that? Okay. Um, maybe you read some of Plato's works. If, if you went to uh, school in, in, uh, in, in a higher education and got a college degree, probably interacted with some of that or at least heard of that, some of that quoted. Uh, maybe even some of Caesar's works. But let me just give you some, if you want to write this down, you can. If not, I'll give it to you later. Um, It's not going to be on the screen for you. But Plato, Plato was written about 427 to 347 B.C., roughly, what we can tell. Okay? The earliest copy that we have of Plato's works is 900 A.D. Okay? 900 A.D. And there's roughly seven copies. In terms of trying to figure out whether or not Plato's works are accurate, critical scholars will tell you that there's not enough copies to make uh, a true assessment of the text. Are you, are you hearing that? There's just not enough copies to really say and affirm, yeah, this is, this is the original. This is, this is true. This, is, this holds up, okay? This is critical scholarship. Believer, non-believer, doesn't matter, okay? Just people who are saying you can't really find reliability in that. Um, Caesar, he wrote roughly 100 to 44 B.C., and the earliest copy we have of Caesar's works are 900 A.D. And we have 10 copies, okay, 10 copies. Homer, this is the one that probably most of us in here would say we know about, and this is from the Iliad, um, he was written roughly 900 B.C. Ancient document, right? Ancient text. 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have from, from his work is, is, five, uh, is 400 A.D. So still 1,300 years removed. 1,300 years. Um, here's what we know. We have 643 copies of the Iliad. That's pretty good, isn't it? In fact, scholars would say after studying the text that we have a 95% certainty that what's there is accurate. 95% certainty. It's pretty good. Now, let me just blow your mind for just a second because let's look at the Bible and let's compare this to these ancient documents that everyone says, yeah, these are true. This holds water you can absolutely go to this and say it's authoritatively. I mean, Plato's works are evaluated and used still, and, and no one really questions whether it's true or not. The New Testament, first century was when it was written. So by 90 AD, by 90 AD, the New Testament had been written. And, and what we find there is that the earliest copy we have, I mentioned to you earlier, is roughly 125 AD. So within 50 years, less than 50 years, we have a copy Closer than any other manuscript that's ancient in this way. But here's what's really the kicker. We have over 5,600 copies. How many to Homer? 643. We have 5,600 copies of the New Testament. 5,600 uh, original copies there. Okay? So what I'm telling you is this, that scholars, both believers in God and non-believers, people who see God's the Bible as authoritative, uh, spiritually speaking, and um, and, and those who don't will tell you that there's a 99.5% accuracy of the text that we hold in our hands today. That means if there's a Bible near you, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, grab one of these. It's yours. Take it home. It's a gift to, to you because we want you to have this. This is a miracle. Can I just say that? This, this book is a miracle. The, the, the fact that it was written over 1,600 years by 40 authors in three languages is a miracle that we are holding it and that it's accurate. Okay? Some people might say, well, what about that half percent? 99.5% accurate, what about the half percent? Again, most of what's there is considered to be stuff that's, that's non-important in terms of meaning. It's not going to change the meaning of the text. It's not going to affect what the message of the Bible is really pointing to. Okay. So intellectually speaking, because I believe as Christians, we need to not just uh, blow these questions off we can have confidence in the reliability of the text today. I could tell you a lot more stories. There's a lot more things that we could talk about. We just don't have time to do it. But I want you to know that there's some other resources that you can read and you can find uh, that will help you um, understand that the reliability of the text is held up. And and every major major attack on the Bible has been refuted. Every major attack on its authority regarding um, its accuracy has been refuted to this day. The second thing that we find and have confidence in is prophecy. Did you know that the Bible has over 1,800 different prophecies? Over 1,800 different prophecies that speak to things from way back that are going to happen in the future. Now, some of those have come to fulfillment already, and some of those have yet to come to fulfillment. When we read the book of Revelation, which, again, if you want to get uh, confused and in the weed, go read the book of Revelation, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting book, it's the last book of the Bible. Um, but very instructive, important in terms of thinking about what, what's coming in, in the future. Um, but when you look at the Bible, there's over 1,800 of these prophecies that are there. And again, none to date have been effectively refuted. But I want to go back to Isaiah 53 for a second. Because this is an amazing passage. When, when did I say that they found this or dated this uh, the, the scrolls to? You remember? 100 B.C. Okay? You're listening. That's good. 100 B.C. So, I want us to read Isaiah 53. If you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Isaiah 53. If you're not real familiar with your Bible, let me just go ahead and give you some help. It's 475, page 475. If you're using one of these Bibles, the brown or the black. Page 475. Now, here's why this is significant. Because this is 100 B.C. that this has been dated to. Which means... When it's talking about Jesus, it's talking about Jesus before he ever comes on the scene, right? It's before Jesus shows up, which would make it prophetic. It's speaking about things that are going to happen in the future. And here's what Isaiah 53 says. Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now, I want you to jump down to verse 10 with me. It says this, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And when you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, and he will prolong his days, and by his hand... The Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of His anguish, and He will be satisfied with His knowledge. And those last two verses we read, the reason why I speak to those is because he's talking about the resurrection. He's saying that you're going to kill him, he's going to be killed unfairly, and he's going to be treated unfairly. but why is he going to be treated that way? For our sin, but he's not going to stay dead, he's going to come out of the grave. And this is a hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene that we've dated this to. Now, it was written actually before that, long before that, roughly 1,000 years, uh, 500 years, particularly Isaiah. But here's what we know. We know today that we can be confident because the Bible speaks prophetically about things that are going to happen in the future, and those things come true. And there's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. We could sit here today, and we could talk about how the Bible said that it was going to happen, and it happened. And I would tell you that we can be confident in its reliability. Isaiah 53 is an amazing passage that reminds us that our Christ suffered for us. And that was foretold, and then he followed through with it. It happened just as the Bible said. The third thing that, we can, that helps us find confidence in the Scripture and the reliability of the Bible today is what the Bible says about itself. Now, some people immediately get up in arms when you start talking about the Bible, talking about itself authoritatively, and they, they start saying, well, aren't you using circular reasoning? Now let me just tell you right now that every person on this planet uses circular reasoning. The question is, is where do you start your circular reasoning from? Are you with me? Circular reasoning is where you start making a a reason, a chain of reasons, but you have to 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 find some authority with which you want to start your reasoning with. And people say that you circle back to the Bible, then obviously that can't be true because you're using the Bible to speak to its own authority. Well, the problem, like I said, is that Everybody in this life basically has their own Bible. Are you with me? Everybody has their book or their, their way, that they, their, their set of knowledge, their set of understandings and beliefs that they're operating off of. The question is, are you the authority in your life or is something outside of you the authority in your life? Because I believe that as we read the Bible, that we will find that what it's in, what, what's in the Bible is true and it's right and it, and it holds up. And I'm going to talk about that more in a second as well. But when we start with the Bible, and we, we will find that the consistency of it holds up over time. And so, circular reasoning, call it whatever you want, but I would rather appeal to an authority that holds up over time than men, than mankind, where our authority consistently gets challenged and changed over time. Even our scientific discoveries change, don't they? I mean, we talk about science sometimes as if it's a concrete fact that everything that we know right now is is 100% true, but guess what? We don't have the corner market on, on all that's going on in this universe. There's things we don't know. Historically, we continue to find things that we don't know. The point, point is this, is that um, I believe that what the Bible says about itself is worthy for us to consider. Well, what does the Bible say about itself? We can't tell you everything this morning the Bible says about itself, but I want to show you one particular passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, okay? Second Timothy chapter 3. what it says, verse 16. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 14, because I want you to hear this whole section. Again, if, uh, if the Bible's new to you, it's page 768. It says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what does the Bible say there about itself? The Bible first says that it is inspired by him. In fact, the language, the literal, literal language there says that it's, it's God breathed. That's a cool thought, isn't it? That literally God breathes his word. In First 1 Peter one twenty one, it talks about men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. So as I'm talking to my kids about the Bible, I remind them that this is not just some men that sat down and decided, hey, we're just going to write this thing, and then uh, it's going to end up in this collection that people are going to use to study some religious way of, of life, um, that, that God prompted these men to write these stories down and to write what he said to them at a particular time in history. This is significant. That God stirred their hearts and he breathed, he told them what to write, he inspired them. What I love is at the same time as he inspired them, when we read the Bible, there's all different types of literature in the Bible. There's poetry, there's history, there's prophetic works, there's letters. And so you get different Uh, styles and and you get personalities that come out in the text and yet again the message of the Bible rings true it's consistent throughout and so it says God the the scripture it says about itself that it's God breathed it's inspired but it also says there that it's, it's useful for what it's useful for teaching and correcting or teaching and rebuking teaching and rebuking and then correcting and training teaching and rebuking really speak to this issue of belief doctrine. And then correcting and training really speak to practice, what you do with that. Uh, what do you do with the information once you have it? And so in all these things, we believe that the Bible helps us understand what we should know and what we should do. Helps us what, understand what we should know and what we should do, and that it's authoritative because it's breathed from the heart of God, breathed from the mouth of God, okay? So the Bible says this about itself. And I believe because it is God-breathed that every single bit of it can be held up as reliable. But the last thing that I want to speak to this morning is the reason why I think that you can be confident the Bible's reliable is because of its transforming impact in the lives of the people who apply it. This one is not uh, academic in nature. This is not a point that we're making saying, okay, this is about reason. I'm telling you straight up that the people that I know that have taken the Bible out and have put it into practice, their lives are radically changed. And I say for the better. Okay? Um, And here's what's important to to remember in that, that um, if you take the Bible and you view the Bible just simply as a a book of tips and tricks for how to, to do life better, you can still get benefit from the Bible. In fact, if you go to the if you go to the Book of Proverbs, you could read the Book of Proverbs, which is very practical for everyday life. You could go to the Book of Proverbs, and you could find some really helpful insights on managing money, on raising kids. You could find money. Uh, you could find good uh, good wisdom on how to make good decisions, so you have enough counsel around you. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of great things in the Bible. There's even cool stories throughout the Bible you could tell and be entertained by the stories that are there. So just even, in, in, even if you don't believe in Jesus and even if you don't believe in God, you can still be benefited by reading the Bible. There's still some positive things that come out of spending time in reading God's Word. But, but here's the challenge. I want you to understand that if all you do is try to apply the Bible like a book of rules, as a, as a book of tips and tricks, you, what you will find is that you're really, or I, I believe, you are missing the point. You are missing its ultimate point. Now Francis Schaeffer, he says, said this about the the Bible. Uh, He said, obey the Bible and it will prove itself true in your life. Obey the Bible and it will prove itself true in your life. And I I believe that, that you will find it to be true. But let me encourage you this morning that the point of the Bible is so much greater. In fact, the Bible's primary purpose is to point us to life in Jesus. It's to point us to life in Jesus. I said this while ago, and I want you to hear me. The Bible is not just a book of rules. The Bible is not just a book about how to do a religion. The Bible is a message to to the people on this planet saying to them that though we screwed up and we blew it, God is a redemptive God, and he is restoring our relationship through the person of Jesus. I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, because as I said, in two weeks, we're going to talk about the big narrative of the Bible. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But hear me out. The center of the Bible, the starting place of the Bible, is not people. It's not humankind. The focus of the Bible, the story of the Bible, is about God, and about His plan, and it's about His purpose that He invites us into so if you read the Bible and you go to the Bible and you say okay I want to read the Bible to get some information out of this so that I can live a better life that's great but it's so much more than that because there's a savior in this Bible named Jesus Christ who wants to have a personal living relationship with you. We do not worship the God of the, we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. The God who wrote the Bible. But this Bible, because it is the living, breathing Word of God, we listen to it. We get instruction from it. We hear it and we obey it because we know it's true. We know it's right. We know it's good. I want to encourage you this morning that if you've never really spent time reading the Bible, if you've never spent, spent much time um, reflecting on what's in it, I encourage you to do that. I know... Uh, maybe there's some folks in here who've, who've read it from cover to cover. Um, I know there's a lot of people who haven't. And whether you have or whether you haven't, I encourage you to regularly spend time in the Bible. Because what you will find is that it is powerful. It is powerful. The words are powerful. And, and I should say that if you start reading the Bible, um, you may get bogged down in Numbers or Leviticus or something like that, okay? Just as a warning. Because it's, there's some interesting, interesting parts of the Bible that's there. But even in the law, what we find there is that the law is reminding humankind that we cannot be good enough in ourselves, that we need a Savior to rescue us, that no matter how hard we try to do everything the Bible says, that we are going to blow it, that no matter how good of a husband or wife or coworker, or or dad, or mom, we try to be, no matter how great we try to be, the Bible reminds us that we will never be able to completely obey everything that's here. Because the point is that we have life in Jesus. We have forgiveness when we screw up, when we blow it in Jesus. We have a Savior who rescues us and who makes us right before a holy God. So this morning, to, the, to answer the question, is the Bible reliable? My answer to you is yes, it is reliable. I think that our modern scholarship gives us great confidence in that. But even greater than that, even greater than all that, is the fact that it is alive. And some of you may go, what are you talking about? And just just spend some time in it. And you will see that a book that was written so many years ago still is very relevant to today. A, A book that was written by 40 different authors still has meaning and purpose for us in the here and now in 2013. And that's, to me, a miracle that has only been been created and sustained by the hand of a miraculous working God, supernatural God in heaven. Let's pray.